Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke 20-Minute Market Outlook podcast, where we share our thoughts about the current economic and market environment. Thank you for joining us today, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com for a PDF version of our quarterly outlook and to learn more about our firm. Hi, this is Alex Shahidi, co-CIO at Evoke Advisors. Joining me today is Damien Besserier, the other co-CIO, and Michael Marco, a senior vice president in our research group. As a reminder, we plan to release this podcast near the beginning of each quarter to share our market outlook and key observations. The goal is to keep the conversation to 20 minutes, which we feel is long enough to convey our thoughts and short enough for our listeners. Today, we will share our perspectives on the current economic and market environment, provide some context for the recent banking crisis, and recap our thoughts about how investors should think about positioning their portfolios for the risks ahead. Damien, why don't we start with you? Would you describe the economic and market backdrop, please? Thanks, Alex. It's nice to speak with everyone again. The story of the past 15 months has really been dominated by the Fed response to the surge in inflation that we experienced starting in 2021 and continuing in 2022. The first three quarters of 2022, we saw as aggressive a response from the central bank as we've ever seen. And if you look back over the last 12 months, the Fed's race rates 4.75%. Uh, that is the fastest rate of tightening we've seen in the past 100 years. The markets understandably reacted to that in a very negative way. So nearly every asset class was down over the first three quarters last year, which is when we reached kind of peak inflation expectations. And then starting in October, we started to see some softer inflation prints. The market had, uh, I think, been cheered on by the fact that maybe the tightening was bringing down inflation in an orderly fashion, and we might we might engineer more of a soft landing, and markets generally rallied. So uh, again, the major driver was a moderation in tightening expectations in Q4 and continuing into Q1. So basically the same dynamic that played out in terms of creating a headwind for asset classes in the first three quarters last year, which was more tightening expectations, worked in reverse in the past two quarters as inflation moderated and tightening expectations uh, moderated as well. Uh, and so that's been really the story. You haven't seen a lot of dispersion across assets. They've largely traded together first in a negative way, and then more recently in a positive way. As we come into 2023, and we talked about this dynamic before, we do expect to start to see a flow through of that aggressive tightening into real economic activity. And so the first quarter, which we'll talk about, was a good example of some of the flow through that we're finally starting to see in terms of the real economy. Okay, so why don't we talk about what happened during that first quarter? It was a pretty remarkable quarter given all the big events that hit the headlines. Absolutely. In the first part of the first quarter, there were some stronger employment reports. Generally, it looked like the economy was continuing to be very resilient in the face of this historic tightening, which which is understandable. We also talked about in last quarter's podcast that there is a lag here in terms of 
how that tightening flows through to economic activity. So it was not surprising that growth continued to be resilient in the face of this tightening. Uh, and markets actually, after a positive January, again, sold off in unison in February because of those stronger stats, implying the need for the Fed to stay tighter for longer. And you started to have more tightening discounted into markets. And that was a headwind for asset classes generally in February. Then we came upon the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, which was something that seems obvious in hindsight, but nobody that we talked to predicted this and was uh, something that started initially with um, something that seemed pretty harmless, which was SVB announcing that they were going to do a $2 billion equity raise as a function of some losses that they were taking on their bond portfolio. That coincided as well with a Moody's downgrade for Silicon Valley Bank. And in response, depositors for the bank pulled out or attempted to pull out about $140 billion over the course of two days, which pushed the bank into FDIC receivership and bankruptcy. And then that had knock-on effects for regional banks in general, because depositors everywhere started to fear for the solvency of other banks as you had these bank runs or depositors taking out large amounts of cash from these bank accounts uh, led to the failure of Signature Bank and also has continued to create problems for other regional banks like First Republic and others. And, and one thing also that is interesting about what happened with SVB and other regional banks is normally when you have a banking crisis, the Fed eases because they want to try to provide stimulus and prevents contagion, et cetera. Uh, in this case, they actually raised rates almost immediately after that on schedule to what they were planning on doing before, maybe raised it less than they had originally planned. But that shows you that we're in a very different environment now than maybe where we've been the last 30 or 40 years, where inflation was low and stable. Now inflation is higher than we've had for a long time. Um, and that reaction function has, has changed. Um, so I think that's an interesting observation about you, you kind of had a crisis period and you saw the response, gives you a sense of what the mindset is of the Fed. Michael, do you have anything to add? Um, sure. Well, just thinking about um, you know what the implications are for the banks of the Silicon Valley Bank collapse and kind of the risk of contagion, it does seem like going forward from a regulatory perspective, regulators are the, I guess the collapse revealed fragilities in the financial system that a lot of regulators weren't aware of and a lot of, you know, in general, we weren't aware of. And so going forward, regulators are going to seek to limit the ability of banks to take undue risk with their deposits. And uh, in general, profitability of banks probably will be affected, particularly the small banks as deposits migrate from smaller banks to the larger money center banks. And as those banks may have to raise interest rates in order to retain those deposits and their existing deposits. Because one thing that uh, the, the collapse revealed is that many depositors have uninsured deposits that are not earning pretty much anything in interest in a lot of these bank accounts when they could be earning you know, four and a half percent plus often in a money market fund uh, invested in government bills. Um, so with less risk and no risk of 
uh, default above the $250,000 FDIC threshold. To the extent that banks have to raise interest rates to retain those deposits, they may see their profitability uh, fall. Um, and then stepping back and just looking at the uh, implications for the economy as a whole, already coming into the quarter, we saw banks were tightening lending standards very significantly on a par with how tight they were back in 2008, back in COVID, and so extremely recessionary levels of tight lending. And that was before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and all of the potential pressure that that is going to put on uh, smaller regional banks' deposit bases and their ability to lend. One thing that we've heard a lot of talk about is how much of uh, lending in the economy, small region, medium-sized banks are responsible for 50% of commercial and industrial business loans in the US, 60% of residential mortgages, up to 80% of commercial real estate lending. And so some of that will be perhaps substituted for by the larger banks. But to the extent that all banks were already tightening coming into SVB, the bank failures and the risk of contagion, potential shrinking of deposit bases going forward is likely to mean that lending is going to shrink even further, which is probably going to hasten the risk of a recession and what we see as a likely recession in the near term. It's interesting listening to Chairman Powell's last conference where he spoke about the risks of a regional banking system issue and the pullback in credit from the regional banking system. That would essentially do some of the job for them and therefore they may see less need for tightening moving forward. That obviously also had a big impact in terms of the discounting within bond markets around future tightening. So we're now, from an expectations perspective, not expected to tighten further and actually expected to ease in the second half of the year. And that's a pretty dramatic shift from where we were even a couple of months ago. And the other thing that I think is interesting is obviously the banks are facing some pressures but the yield curve is still inverted. And if you think about, if you want to, as an investor, you can go buy uh, T-bills and get a higher yield than a long-term bond. Banks, they are going to have to pay potentially a higher interest rate for deposits. And they have these loans that they've made over the last five years or so at very low rates. So the profitability there is going to get even more challenged. It's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. Damien, would you describe how we see the tightening flowing through and perhaps some of the most susceptible parts of the economy? Sure. The initially impacted components of the economy were tech. Tech obviously benefited from all of the easy money that was created in, in you know, the post-COVID period. And as interest rates increased and credit got tighter and venture capital funding disappeared, and public market valuations collapsed, you saw essentially a more or less a cessation of funding into that sector. So tech was the first area that was impacted. And then you saw also a, a pretty significant impact in housing because mortgage rates went up a lot. Now, it didn't cause the collapse that we saw in the global financial crisis because most people have equity in their homes and they have low interest rate mortgages. So it's been more of a slow moving train wreck. But we do think that over time that will lead to less liquidity in the economy because people aren't able to monetize that equity as easily since they have to buy a new house. They aren't 
able to refinance their mortgages and take money out of their homes as easily as they could in the past because of higher interest rates. And so it's it's a little bit like turning screws on the economy in terms of of that source of liquidity and and the support for spending that comes out of the housing market. And most recently, we've been watching the commercial real estate market very closely. As Michael alluded to, uh, the regional banking sector is an area that provides a lot of the lending, depending on what you're looking at, um, upwards of 70, 80% of the lending into the commercial real estate sector. The securitization markets like the commercial mortgage-backed security markets have already been frozen as a function of the big rise in interest rates last year. That was another source of liquidity into that uh, commercial real estate sector. And so the financing options have really dried up in the commercial real estate sector. And this is something we've been speaking to our managers about for some time. The one support that you saw was on the revenue side for these uh, these properties, particularly in multifamily and industrial you've seen a, a big rise in rents. That's now starting to moderate on the multifamily side um, and even in the industrial side in some places. And so you're, if you think about the setup for commercial real estate, you have no financing or much more expensive financing. At the same time, you have revenues that are leveling off or falling or certainly not keeping up with projections that you might've had a year ago. If you look out over the next couple of years, we see a trillion dollars plus of commercial real estate loans that have to be refinanced that are maturing. So it's setting up for, we think, a pretty difficult environment for commercial real estate, one that might create a lot of opportunities for skilled investors in the space, both on the credit and the equity side, but we think is probably a headwind overall for the asset class. Why don't we shift forward to what we see ahead? Maybe, Michael, why don't you start with our views about what the future paths may look like? Sure. Thanks, Alex. I think you know it's worth going back to what the big question weighing on markets was, I think, coming into the quarter and has been for a few quarters now is the Fed, as Damien talked about, has engaged in the most aggressive tightening we've seen in at least 40 years. And the big question is, how quickly is that going to flow through to the economy? And how do we gauge what the impact is going to look like? And it's really difficult because there is a significant lead lag between when the tightening happens and when the impact is felt, like how the repercussions percolate through the economy. And so typically what happens after a tightening, when the Fed starts to see economic weakness historically, um, at least for you know, recent in recent decades, the Fed eases. So the Fed responds by easing to stimulate economic growth again. This time we have the inflation headwind we've talked about that basically makes easing problematic now. And so right now, as folks try to gauge what the different possible economic outcomes are going to look like, it seems like market participants have kind of divided up into three different camps. And one of them is kind of typically called higher for longer, in which folks think that you know solid growth that we've seen to date and the uh, ongoing inflation pressures, in, in particular the tight labor market, are going to force the Fed to kind of stay the course, keep rates higher for longer than markets are now expecting. In other words, that the Fed won't ease, as Damien mentioned, or, or Alex, as you mentioned, that uh, is expected now. And so won't, won't ease for a while until inflation is back to target. The second scenario that folks have envisioned is the idea of a soft landing, which you know Chairman Powell recently said still he still thinks is a viable 
possibility of bringing inflation back to target and having growth weaken, but not drive the economy into a recession. And then the last uh, of the three scenarios is a hard landing in which the tightening, even though it takes longer to flow through, ultimately leads to a drying, drying up of money and credit that drives the economy into uh, a recession. Looking at you know, what these different options might look like, um, when we compare it to what we've seen historically, it seems pretty unlikely to us, given the magnitude of the tightening and uh, the Fed's commitment to fighting inflation on the back of you know, looking at history and not wanting to repeat uh, the problems that we saw in the 70s due to inflation, it seems unlikely to us, um, is particularly now, com- compounding that with the banking crisis that we've seen, that the soft landing scenario is really uh, all that realistic. But there really is a lot of uncertainty given the lead lack. So it, it, as you said, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Given all of these risks that we've described and the three potential paths that, Michael, you described uh, in terms of soft landing, hard landing, higher for longer, how should investors think about positioning given the wide range of outcomes? When it comes to positioning, I think it's important to first, I guess, think about like what markets are pricing right now. And when you look at the market pricing, you've seen treasuries come down pretty sharply in the past few weeks to now below 3.3% on the 10-year, which is the level we haven't seen since September and arguably predicting a recession. Um, yet at the same time, equities do not look cheap to us. When you look at analyst projections of earnings growth, the estimates are wide-ranging, but all pretty positive, um, particularly going into 2024 and beyond. Um, and so when, with many projections of double-digit earnings growth, on the one hand, it's hard to imagine equities being a safe place, given the optimism that's priced in, when you have this backdrop of a significant tightening, a tightening in lending standards, and the likely flow-through to the economy that Damien talked about, including commercial real estate and beyond that, in order to bring inflation back in line. Um, and so we think it's really important, you know, we, we stress this time and again, but having balance in the portfolio where you're not exposed to growth surprises or you're not in particular betting on a soft landing, betting on a positive growth outcome seems like a very prudent thing to do. I think what's interesting is at least when we look at portfolios outside of our firm, most are betting on a soft landing without even realizing it. And it's because they're overly concentrated in a single asset class equities. And I guess the message is be more diversified than that. There's, there's significant risk that one of those paths isn't supportive of equities. So own other assets that might give you an equity-like return over the long run, but in a, uh, is not necessarily highly correlated to do well at the same time as equities. Damien, do you have anything to add? I think a lot of times when people think about the risk in owning an asset class, they think about the short-term risk of a big drop. We think about risk in the context of an extended period of underperformance. So if you get the wrong environment for equities, like we had in the 70s when inflation was persistently high, or like we had in the 2000s when growth was persistently weak, equities can do poorly for extended periods of time. So equities 
were behind cash for about 12 years from the late 60s to the early 80s. Uh, similarly, in the 2000s, as I mentioned, if you get this weaker growth outcome after a period when you had very optimistic expectations, that can lead to underperformance for an extended period of time. The SP was negative over the course of the 2000s. And so concentration to any single asset class, if you are trying to compound wealth or meet any sort of spending needs, pension liabilities, what have you, it's devastating to rely on one thing to get you there. And given the risks that we see of an extended period of weaker growth or higher inflation, we think it's prudent to be diversified to things that can benefit in those environments. And the odds of having those extended periods of underperformance go way down the more diversified you are. And and to be clear, I don't think we're saying that equities are going to do poorly. It's more of a risk management discussion. And at the very least, it doesn't make sense to bet it all on a favorable equity environment. I think that's the, the main message. Would you two agree? Absolutely. Normally, when there's distress, there's over and under reactions to things. And so it creates opportunity for high quality active management as well. So we think that should be part of it, particularly in less efficient areas uh, like some of the private market uh, asset classes. I think that brings us to a close. Uh, Damien, Michael, thank you. I look forward to our conversation next quarter. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to the Evoke 20-Minute Market Outlook podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at evokeadvisors.com. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would also enjoy listening. This quarterly podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. (music) 